so we're, we're talking about Howard Hughes and one of the major things that he does, almost unfathomable when, when you really, if you're, as you mentioned, going back in time and really looking at history from the time period, he ends up purchasing one of the major, big five, major studios, RKO. Uh, how in the world does he even pull off this feat? He became the only individual to solely own one of the major Hollywood studios. And basically, after kind of toiling as an independent producer for so long, he realized that if he wanted to make more movies, if he wanted to have an even greater impact, he no longer needed to be an independent, that he needed to really embrace the studio system and become an integral part of it. And the easiest way for someone with his resources to do so was to buy a major studio. RKO was established in the late 1920s, was one of the big five vertically integrated studios, but it was also kind of the weakest. Uh, financially, it was always in a perilous situation, um, whereas other studios really kind of had their own identity. RKO kind of made all different types of movies, but made some really great movies. Uh, King Kong, Notorious, Out of the Past, the greatest movie considered of the golden age of the studio system, Citizen Kane. That's an RKO picture. So in 1948, he purchased controlling interest of the studio for a little under $9 million, and then ran the studio as if he was its sole owner. He would go on to buy complete interest in the studio, but initially he was just the majority owner, and he ran the studio as if it was his own fiefdom and kind of made some of the movies as you would not be surprised, just like the ones that he had made as an independent producer, but then also found himself butting heads with the studio system while now an integral part of it. Well, it's a little hard to kick a guy out when he's part of the, you know, he, he's bought a, a club membership, so he's one of five, uh, so it's, you know, it's difficult, he's, he was kind of the, he, he was kind of like Rodney Dangerfield in Caddyshack, you know, he was the guy who kind of came in and was disrupting the golf course, you know, but you couldn't really stop him because he's building the, the condos across the street, you know. Um, so he, he comes in and, and so he, what is the really historically significant part of all this are not the movie. I mean, besides the purchasing of, of the lar one of the big studios, but he, while he's there, the studio system is, is coming under fire. And as we mentioned before, the key part of this is the exhibition, the monopoly on exhibiting films. So this comes into question, this, this exact issue actually is brought before the Supreme Court. And I'm kind of fast-forwarding here, I'm missing out some details, but essentially what they're deciding is whether or not these big five studios should spin off their theater into theater chains and just focus solely on production of motion pictures. And while this is going on, RKO, led by Howard Hughes, is the first studio to voluntarily spin off their theater chain, correct? Yes, yeah. So 1948, it goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court rules that the studios are in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Law, but they really don't make a definitive ruling as to what that means and how they would uh, be in compliance. So the federal government comes back and says any studio that's willing to voluntarily separate exhibition from production, um, you know, the three aspects of the making a movie, production, distribution, and exhibition. Exhibition's where the bulk of the revenue is. But if you'll strip off the production from the exhibition, you will be in compliance with the law. 
they said. And they all thought that all of the studios, which had been fighting this for almost two decades, would continue to fight it. Howard Hughes realizes that if I split it off, RKO, which was, again, one of the weaker of the, the big five, would put, be put on a higher kind of pedestal. It would actually kind of level the playing field, so to speak. It would also mean that he owned two companies conceivably, so he'd be able to make more money. So Hughes saw it as a benefit to him and to his company, RKO, so he agreed to split it. And this really kind of, once one company said that they were willing to split it, the other kind of that unified stance of the other corporations really started to crumble. And as a result of this, this ended the studio system. So when we talk about the golden age of Hollywood, it's that time when the studio, and that's not necessarily the right term, the corporation owned production, distribution, and exhibition. After that, no longer could they own all three parts of making a movie, and it changed the industry forever. Probably the singular most important thing that Hughes did while he was in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean that is, I mean that is incredible. Bringing down this you know, decades-old system. I mean, he basically brought it down to its knees. The whole—I'm I, I, just going to kind of gloss over some of the major parts because you, you outline it very well in your book, and I recommend people read the book to actually get all the ins and outs of this. But it's so interesting because he buys RKO. Um, from Floyd Odlum, when he was one of the great titans of the, the mid 20th century. Yeah, he so he's another one of these big industrialists. He he owns the majority of RKO. He so Hughes buys it from Floyd. Floyd in his contract he works it out where if anything gets, I think if the theater chain gets spun off, he gets first crack at it. Floyd never leaves the picture. Um, while while Hughes is running RKO, he ends up selling it to to a a group that group is kind of outed as being crooks and basically because of um, popular sentiment Hughes ends up getting the shares of RKO back so I think you mentioned one of the one of the quotes is he was able to sell a company and keep it too so he ends up selling yeah, RKO yeah. and he kept a down payment of 1.25 million dollars too <laughs> I mean, like, so he made money on selling it and still managed to keep it which is kind of mind-numbing but the, the the series of events is is just insane so so all that's going on floyd's still in the picture he wants to get the the theater chain um there's lots of corporate battling going on there and on top of that if that doesn't interest you which it absolutely should on top of that while hughes is in charge of rko two major things happen again going to his love of controversy first of all robert mitchum it's so funny when you think about what happened he gets essentially busted for smoking marijuana and he believes his career is over it is such a weird time to live in california where this happened in california you would think his career was over people thought he'd go to jail forever and now there's people smoking marijuana probably outside my building right now i mean that is how it was a felony charge i mean he, right. he was looking at years in prison in 1948 when he was busted for having a marijuana party Right. Um, yeah, just you know, within doors. And his his quote was when they asked him when he was getting booked, you know, what's your occupation? And he said, former actor, because he thought his career was washed up because he had been busted smoking, and it had made the the front pages. That's where it was different. A lot right, of the stuff right. during that time was swept under the rug, so you never heard about it. But because of the fact that he knew that not only was he arrested, but that it was going to make the papers, he thought his career was over. But Hughes saw this as a wonderful opportunity to exploit one of the biggest stars of RKO. 
Yeah, and, and you talk, you do the, the whole thing about the fixers, basically the heads of publicity who, again, swept it under the rug through their connections with the media, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, which are local. They're, they're still around. They're basically reporters on the entertainment industry, the insider's entertainment industry, not like Entertainment Weekly or People or anything like that. This is the, the business side of entertainment. Uh, once, once it hits that, everyone knows about it, and it's, it's a big deal. So this hit the papers. But, you know, it, it's funny how Hughes essentially took that, and I, mean, I think they were did interviews with him every day while he was on the chain gang or whatever. Like, he was in prison. They're talking with him. He, you know, he had a movie that he was uh, shoot. I think he was shooting a movie, and they used that as, as evidence and why he should be kept out of prison. I mean, it was a whole circus. But essentially, the controversy surrounding Robert Mitchum and his marijuana smoking was allowed Hughes to kind of make money off of the scandal, which was which is really interesting. There used to be morals clause, yeah, and well, there, morals, there was a yeah, morals yeah, clause, yeah, yeah, which basically said normally that's what they would use to exercise to say because you have violated this morals clause, we are not only going to fire you, we're going to ruin your career. And right, Hughes right. did the exact opposite with these individuals. And again, it's a different time. The, the morals of people is extraordinarily different. There was a lot more riding on people's outward image. You didn't want anyone's image to be tarnished. You were basically selling Hollywood stars as gods essentially. You know, they were essentially people who were untouchable. Um, they were on a different pedestal. It's such a different world because everyone wanted this clean image back then. And now to be successful, you have to release a sex tape. I mean, it's like it could not be like more opposite from classic Hollywood nowadays. It's very interesting how history works sometimes. Uh, but, but so speaking of sex tape, uh, the, the second scandal that happens is is extraordinarily different, but Hughes t- kind of takes the same approach, and that's Ingrid Bergman and and Roberto Rossellini, who are doing uh, who are doing a movie essentially to boil it down. They go to do a movie. They're both married separately. Uh, they're not married to each other, but they obviously have an affair, as many people in, in this industry do, and they have a kid. They have a child out of wedlock during this whole thing. So this becomes a gigantic scandal. Hughes uses tries to use that controversy to his advantage the way he did with Robert Mitchum. It does not work. It actually has an opposite effect. She ends up getting blackballed from the, the industry for, for about six years. Different effect. This is, you know, it's the same using the controversy to your, trying to use it to your advantage. Why do you believe this had such a different effect than the Robert Mitchum version? Uh, her persona was much different. You know, Mitchum was known as kind of this hard drinker, kind of this, you know, rough around the edges. His 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 upbringing was, was not so glamorous. But, you know, Ingrid Bergman was Hollywood's golden lady. I mean, she was, you know, Joan of Arc. I mean, she was the saint. She was a nun. These were characters that she played and people thought about. So she really had this truly wholesome and virtuous persona, which was crafted by the studio. I mean, that was created. I mean, you know, we all have our flaws. She was no exception, but they made her seem like she was absolutely perfect. So when Mitchum, oh, you know, kind of this rough man's man, got into trouble for smoking marijuana, right. eh, not that big a deal. But when the virtuous, wholesome Ingrid Bergman is having an affair, she's having a child out of wedlock, she's abandoning her right. husband and her other daughter as a result of this, that's where people really turned on her. And even uh, Edwin Johnson, who was a Colorado senator, denounces wow. her on the floor of the Senate. I mean, he <laughs> oh. goes on this rant saying how horrible she is and how the 
industry needs to be regulated as a result of this. So like you said, it's, it's a different time and place that we're talking about when the image was really completely different and how people wanted to be perceived. But this did open the floodgate to what we think of now, because what you saw was ultimately, while Ingrid Bergman was blackballed, she did ultimately come back to the industry in 56. She won her second Academy Award. So really what you see is he's, as he was doing earlier, he's chipping away at this old style of making movies, promoting movies to really create, as I sum up with the subtitle, the creation of modern Hollywood. The Hollywood that exists today is the result of a lot of the things that Hughes brought to the forefront. Well, and one other interesting story about this is Bergman had a stake in the movie, had a stake in the, in the profits. And so her publicist goes to Hughes and say, look, we need to rush this to the theaters because this is probably going to break, uh, but keep it quiet. And Hughes does the opposite. He actually is the one who breaks the news, um, which essentially probably caused Bergman a lot of money because what's interesting about this story is, as we mentioned, the, Hughes had a heavy hand in destroying the studio system. He spun off the theater, the exhibition part. Well, now, without a guaranteed exhibition that you own, now theater owners are getting to decide the movies that they're going to show. With the backlash that you mentioned against Bergman and and her image, now theater owners don't want to show the movie that she's in, which means if you don't sell the movie, she's not going to get a, her 40% stake of absolutely nothing is absolutely nothing. So she lost a fortune on the, on this whole debacle because of Howard Hughes' handling of the situation. He tried to time the release of the film to when the baby was actually going to be born. Right. I mean, there was clearly no no denying what his motivation was. But you know, one of the there's a few quotes Jeez. I have in there, and one of them is to the effect that no other film had garnered the same amount of attention as this particular one did. So the one thing I would just supplement to what you said was though, while some exhibitionists, some some theater owners did not want to show it on moral grounds, some of them said, My God, we have to show it. Everyone's talking about it. This is gonna be the next big picture. So you really saw that debate taking place to where, you know, should we focus on this? Should we not focus on this? Is this something that we should capitalize on? And we see, although that debate is going to take place over a few years um, in general, nowadays, you know, if there is a big scandal or something like that, they, they want the film out there. They want to do it. So, again, you're seeing that, that the zeitgeist change as a result of that. Right. I mean, it's, it's a really crazy time. And, and so just to sum up here, so... Uh, the, the sum up RKO. So that happens. RKO essentially, under Hughes' leadership, goes through a slow, painful decline. It's so much so, and and he's he's got rounds of layoffs. He's laying people off. He's he, you know the the companies. He's essentially whittling the the company down to almost nothing. It is it is amazing that the last little bit of the story of RKO is kind of is 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 blows my mind. So essentially, again, we mentioned he's not the single owner of RKO. He has shareholders and stakeholders. And, and a board, they essentially, some of them, based on this mismanagement, decide to sue him uh, because he's he's essentially making, he's bringing down the stock price, they're losing money. So he sues them. His response is to buy them out at essentially double what the stock is worth. And when they accept that offer, and basically whether they accept it or not becomes a whole other issue. But what's interesting about this is when they the board agrees to accept this offer and he becomes the sole owner, all of those lawsuits go away because essentially they were on behalf of the corporation suing Hughes 
And once he owns the corporation, because that lawsuit is supposed to benefit the corporation and he's the sole owner, all the lawsuits disappear. So his way of kind of getting rid of the legal problems was just to buy the studio outright, which is just, that's just, that's classic Hughes, you know, classic Howard Hughes. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the many assets. He gets the production studio, he gets the the studios themselves, the property, the buildings, he gets the film catalog. So he owns all of this now. The only person to singularly own one of the major Hollywood studios, but continues to run it into the ground, ultimately sells it off. And RKO of the big five that we've been talking about is the only studio that does not still exist to this day. Well, now, now, now I'm going to, I'm going to, qualify that a little bit because Fox 20th Century Fox doesn't really exist anymore either that's been sold to Disney so it while it exists it doesn't really exist as an independent studio the studio exists yeah well the studio exists right. and it's still putting out product and I would you could qualify. I thought you were going to go in a slightly different <laughs> direction I, I believe the corporate shell of RKO has been revived once or twice it um, has. I was gonna but say that again well, yeah. not to the extent of where if you were to say you know are these ones producing movies the only one really not producing movies to this day from the big five is RKO right that is fair I mean because it is tech but it is not it is not in it is not one of the big five it is not a studio that exists independently anymore and in and, and also MGM is not anywhere near one of the it's it's Correct. almost barely a, a studio as well although it does exist so yeah. um, it is interesting how the winds of change I mean you don't even mention Disney in in the 50s you know and then they had Disneyland they were putting out animation films I mean Disney was around and it was a force in a very specific market um, but it's what company you know, produced what company distributed Disney's movies RKO for many years oh I did not realize that oh that is int- oh wow <laughs> what a great tie-in I didn't know that that's incredible um, I mean, this this is this was an absolutely eye-opening story for me. I mean, I live in Hollywood. I, I love RKO films. I think Howard Hughes and Orson Welles. I think I, I would imagine Howard Hughes kind of fancied himself an Orson Welles esque type of character, even though he definitely was not. Um, but I knew about RKO. I did not know this history. I did not know Howard Hughes owned part of RKO. Um, this is, as you mentioned, this is a small piece of his history. But again, his 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 tentacles are felt all over the industry. His his influence in Hollywood is still felt today. And again, I go back to my point. None of this would have been possible without money that he and endless supply of money because no one could fail this much and still make history, in my opinion, unless you're maybe Ed Wood. I guess you could put in there. Um, but I don't know that Howard Hughes is, is much like Ed Wood. But just a fascinating story, uh, Jeff. You've done a great job with the, with the history here. What an incredible job researching it. Um, this is this is an incredible story. I, I got to give it to you. Well, thank you. And I, I think really what sets it apart, as you mentioned kind of earlier, was the fact that so much has been written about Hughes. I didn't want to look at that. What I wanted to go back to was the historical record. I wanted to use all primary documents to tell this story because the story has been manipulated by historians, by Hughes himself over time, that as a result of it, you know, we don't really truly understand it. So to really get back to the record, to get back to the historical documents, the letters, the corporate records, that is what allowed me to tell this story, I think, accurately and truthfully, kind of showing the big picture for the first 
first time because of the way I approached it. Um, and again, it's just like you said, one sliver. I don't go into the aviation except for to kind of as a footnote to kind of explain some of the other aspects. I don't go into the later part of his career. The idea is to really focus on this one aspect of his life that has been overlooked, and that's his time in Hollywood. And it happens during his prime. I mean, it's before he kind of, you know, kind of loses it mentally a little bit. I mean, this is really in the in the prime of, of, of Howard Hughes. And he did all of his business operations out of 7,000 Romaine uh, Drive, I believe. And the building still exists. A friend of mine used to work there. Um, hopefully, I'm going to shoot some, some footage out in front of it. It's right across the street from a Target and a construction company. Uh, so it's it's not exactly in, in – it doesn't look like how it used to look back then. But the building still exists. And it's a fantastic Art Deco building. I love it. Uh, this is just a great piece of history. Yeah, and that you know that building itself, Seven Thousand Romaine Street. It's it's. They say a lot of stuff went on there. That was his base of operations. And this is getting outside of my purview. But you know this that that building ties to Watergate. Um, it ties to all sorts of different aspects of American history because Hughes' tentacles were involved in all of these things. So you know, if those walls could talk, they would have some stories that go well beyond Hollywood. Well, I think we've established your trilogy. I want to see uh, Howard Hughes, American Golfer, next. And I want to see what happened at 7000 Romaine Street, a story of Howard Hughes' tentacles stretching across the globe. I've already given you your titles. I've given you your you. subject matter. Uh, I'd like to see a manuscript sometime next week. Um, Jeffrey, thank you for, for this extra time. This has been incredible. Thank you, Daniel. I do appreciate it. Yeah, you could certainly do that. I mean, think about that. Read the book and, you know, because mine is just on the revolver. So I think I sent uh, Sarah a copy of that one. So check check that out because that certainly could be something that you might want to consider going into. Oh, okay. Perfect. I appreciate it. If you need anything else, just let me know. It's been a blast. I appreciate it, Daniel. All right. Take care. Bye.